You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Proton Mail's been hit by Apophis Squad DDoS. Rancor cyber espionage campaign is observed in Southeast Asia. Python bot serves up adware and crypto jacking. A WannaCry-themed protection racket is all bark and no bite. The EU's organizing a joint cyber incident response force. The FBI and international partners make arrests in an Africa-based business email compromise racket. And reality winners guilty plea. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, June 27, 2018. A major distributed denial-of-service attack hit both ProtonMail and ProtonVPN for several hours. The affected service provider says a group linked to Russia is claiming responsibility. The group counting coup is Apophis Squad, according to both TechCrunch and what we've seen in a bit of flame war between ProtonMail and those it calls clowns. The attack this morning lasted several hours, although most users experienced it as intermittent service outages. ProtonMail is an encrypted service incorporated in and operating from Switzerland. The company said their upstream DDoS protection service, Radware, needed more time than usual to perform its mitigations. The attack was more focused than the usual run-of-the-mill denial-of-service attacks ProtonMail and others experience daily. Apophis Squad has been making a nuisance of itself for several years, and hey, looky-looky, Apophis Squad still seems to have its very own Twitter account. Apophis Squad apparently takes its name from the Greek version of the Uncreator, the dark and baleful serpent of Egyptian mythology. Apophis is the enemy of the sun god Ra, and he's usually held in check by the god Set, or in this case, of course, by the engineers at Radware. Palo Alto researchers describe Rancor, a new APT group engaged in cyber espionage against Singapore, Cambodia, and Thailand. Attribution isn't clear, but there's some circumstantial commonality between the back door Rancor is using and that employed by Chinese threat actors. Palo Alto thinks the campaign probably insinuated itself into its target's web pages through spear phishing. It's using two distinctive malware strains, Didi Kong and Plain Tea. The latter strain, Plain Tea, looks to be novel. Kaspersky researchers are warning that a new variety of adware is infesting susceptible Windows machines. They call it PBOT or Python Bot, obviously because it's written in Python. PBOT is not only an irritating strain of adware, but it's also a cryptojacker. Most of the victims seen so far have been located in Kazakhstan, Latvia, Ukraine, and Russia. The UK's Action Fraud Centre is warning that WannaCry-connected emails are circulating. Indeed they are, but don't be deceived. The emails represent nothing more than an empty threat. It's a continuation of an ongoing campaign in which some petty hoods are telling people that they'll infect them with WannaCry if they don't pay up. Again, the threat is empty. The crooks don't have WannaCry, or apparently anything else. So just delete the email as the spam it is, and move on. The EU is organizing a cyber response force that will coordinate the Union's reaction to incidents. The Declaration of Intent, proposed by Lithuania, has advanced and acquired more signatories. 
France, Finland, Croatia, Estonia, Spain, and the Netherlands are on board with Lithuania, and Belgium, Slovenia, Germany, and Greece have signed on as observers. Lithuanian officials said, as reported by InfoSecurity magazine, that, quote, each participant would need to have a standing cybersecurity unit which could join the neutralization and investigation in virtual or even physical reality in the event of a significant cyber incident, end quote. The group plans to hold its first joint exercises later this year. The U.S. federal government regularly faces criticism for inefficiency and insufficient attention to cybersecurity. Paul Aubin is regional sales manager for the civilian intelligence and global system integrator business at Veronis, where they recently surveyed government IT professionals, and he shares the survey results. The really key finding that was really important to us is, you know, I think it was 82% said protecting the data is now our top priority. You know, if you look at a network, eight, you know, between 60 and 80% of the data on a network is what we call unstructured data, you know, Word files, PDF files, Excel spreadsheets, you know, those documents that are created by users, not, not the Oracle database or the financial database type data, right? The problem with that is, is you don't know what's in that data. You don't know if that data is what we call sensitive, right? So, and, and sensitive, just to define that for your listeners, is any data that is seen by the wrong group or individuals can cause harm. Mm. Right. That, that's how we define sensitive. It could be a sim- it could be a PII information. It could be a list of social security numbers and driver's license, which would be really bad. But it could also just be a memo that you wrote about an employee. So sensitive goes beyond what people normally think, the HIPAA, the PCI and that type of thing. Right. Okay. What, what was really valuable to us is that is now a top priority in the agency. Right. And if you look at CDM, phase four is 100 percent about protecting that data. What is your advice for folks who are uh, who who want to get into that government market? Because it's it's different than selling to the private sector. There, the the rhythms are different. The cycles are different. Do you have any tips for folks? You know, I, I tell people who want to. You know, I think let's first separate people who want to work as contractors in the government sector versus people who want to work for you know sell to the government sector like I do. Um, yeah, the big difference is just understand that the pace is going to be very different, that the process is going to be very different, right? That there's going to be a lot of rules and roadblocks that you just have to accept, right? And, and just know that that's part of it and, and accept it. Don't complain about it. You know, I'm not saying don't change some of it, but, you know, understand that that's just the way it works. Is that slower cycle a potential barrier for protection itself? Does it, does it slow down the ability to innovate, to, to take on uh, new technologies? you follow my line of thinking here? It is. I definitely believe it is. Uh, I've talked to a number of federal agencies that are like, hey, this is fantastic. I wish I would have talked to you 10 months ago, um, but I've already spent my allocation for this year. You're in my fiscal 19 plan now. You know, and so, so what does that really say? Okay, I see value in this. I want to add this protection that you provide, but I'm not going to do it for nine months. Right. right. Or there's even a few agencies out there that are ready to do it. But due to waiting on award of contracts or waiting on award of service agreements, you know, it's still going to be six to nine months. So, yeah, the the bureaucratic nature of government does slow it down and probably does leave things unprotected differently than what would happen in a commercial agency where the CEO's like, shoot, I'm going to lose my job if I don't fix this. I'm going to reallocate resources. I'm going to reallocate people and I'm going to make this a priority today. Right. I think the other thing that's changed is you're seeing accountability 
you know, the, the executive order around accountability on cybersecurity that came out earlier this year from the current administration, you know, is now holding senior executives, senior military officers, and even cabinet level leaders and political appointees responsible for this. And I think that might have been some of the problems prior to this is, OK, I didn't do it. We got a breach, but nobody got nobody lost their job over it. That's Paul Aubin from Veronis. An international law enforcement effort, Operation Keyboard Warrior, has resulted in the arrest of eight suspects as a business email compromise ring based in Africa is broken up. The U.S. FBI is particularly pleased with the callers. Booz Allen's Dark Lab has been tracking business email compromise activity for some time. They note that it usually establishes itself in one of three ways. Commodity keyloggers, compromise of a company employee's internal email account, or, most commonly, sending a deceptive email to someone authorized to transfer money and then directing them to perform a wire transfer. Dark Lab has a list of domains recently involved in this last form of business email compromise. You can find that list posted in Booz Allen's Perspectives blog under the entry New BEC Scheme Targets Companies Worldwide. Reality Winner's plea agreement in the case of classified material leaked to The Intercept calls for Ms. Winner to serve five years and three months in prison. Her guilty plea was entered yesterday, but her sentence will be formally imposed at a later date. She acknowledged taking classified material from her workplace, she was then working for an NSA contractor in Georgia, and offering it to The Intercept. Supporters of the 26-year-old NSA and Air Force alumna are asking that the court consider her service to her country in mitigation. It's difficult not to notice that much the same could be said for anyone who released classified material when such release wasn't duly authorized, a little like the famous jokey example of chutzpah in which the child who killed his parents throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's now an orphan. Ms. Winner was scooped up quickly by investigators after The Intercept sought to authenticate the documents they were offered. Good on The Intercept for trying to confirm a story, but it was bad luck for the leaker, since the agency that saw the material was able to swiftly find where the leak came from. Specifically, Ms. Winner was undone and unmasked by microdots in the printed documents she proffered to the journalists. Now, researchers at Teyu Dresden say they've developed a technique of masking such identifying marks. Too late for Ms. Winner, but soon to be on offer for future leakers. The researchers looked at 141 printer models made by 18 manufacturers and mapped four distinct tracking dot patterns or matrices. They created an app that automates tracking dot pattern extraction and analysis and also creation and implementation of anonymization patterns that can be overlaid on a document to render the dots ambiguous. The app works at least for scanned documents, and the Teyu Dresden crew has made it available. Too late for some, and of course one imagines there will be a response from those who work on tracking technology. And finally, no, it's not just you. Yes, Slack went down this morning, with many an earthquake through many a business. Reasons for the outage are unclear, but Slack is back up for at least some of us. It was, of course, a trial, speaking face-to-face with your co-workers. If you think you had it rough, imagine how it was for me, talking to the linguistic staff or the gunnery desk or, heaven forbid, the historians. Mm-hmm. 
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the Director of Analysis at Terbium Labs. Emily, welcome back. Uh, you have a, a tale to tell, a story to share with us. This is about a six-year-old getting hit with uh, some identity fraud. Um, tell us the story. What do we need to know here? So this is a story that I first read a few months ago. I think it first dropped in April, and I found myself referencing it in conversation often enough that I wanted to share it with your listeners. So the situation here is that a six-year-old girl out of Arizona, was first hit with uh, ID theft back in 2011. Yes, a six-year-old ID theft. Hmm. And this is one example of you know, what I'm sure your listeners are coming to hear more about every day of synthetic ID fraud, right? This is a situation where uh, someone is using the social security number of another individual, typically a child, um, combined with information from uh, a variety of other sources to create this new composite ID. And so the mother of the six-year-old found that uh, somebody had been opening retail credit card accounts with this child's social security number. Mm. And this begins sort of a twisted tale where the mother, I think as any of us would think to do, decides to try and prosecute this and try and take this all the way to the end and you know, not only kind of bring some attention to the issue, but also help her daughter out because you know, the last thing you want when you're six is bad credit. <laughs> so over the course of... Four or five years, you know, this mother is consistently dealing with issues. She's going to stores and trying to get information about who opened the account, showing them the social of her daughter, saying, you know, this is my kid's social. You have to share share with me the information opened under this identity in store saying, you know, no, we can't give you that, you know, showing lots of gaps in the uh, in the framework that we have now. So protecting the privacy of, of, the, fraudster. of the fraudster. Yes. All right. Go on. Uh, and the mother goes so far as, you know, she's talking to the Social Security Administration and asking to get a social reissued for her daughter. 
And she changes not only her daughter's first name, but her middle name uh, in an effort to create a new ID based on the Social Security Administration's requirements. And they say, no, you have to change her last name, too. So you're already changing, you know, the identity that this girl has come to know because somebody else is committing fraud and the government's saying, sorry, we can't do anything about it. Hmm. Uh, And so in the end, they still have not reissued a social. They are now seeing another set of frauds being applied to this girl. And this is, again, seven or eight years after the initial fraud. Uh, And I just it's a horrifying story. And I think it's one that we're going to see more examples of in the years to come as people begin to recognize that their kids' IDs are being used for things like this. Well, and I think it also points to the the, the possibility that uh, we rely on that Social Security number for far more things than what it was originally designed for and what's useful. And, and you know, we perhaps it's time to move on. There are a lot of good conversations being had about finding some other authenticator, uh, and I'm excited to see that happen. I think in the meantime, we're in this weird dynamic. And I I say weird because there's really no other word for for it. It's uh, a situation where we're using a single identifier that is both universally known and yet extremely sensitive for everything that we do kind of with the government and in the private sector in many cases. And this is something that people can easily get their hands on, easily exploit. And until very recently, businesses had no way to verify The one good piece, if there is a good piece, the one small piece of progress in this story is that recently, uh, end of May, there was a Consumer Protection Act that came out that is going to require the Social Security Administration to create a system to allow financial institutions and others, um, other relevant parties, I should be clear, to uh, confirm that the name and contact information associated with a social actually matches up to what the financial institution was given. Mm. And this is the kind of solution that you think would have been around (laughs) since the 90s. But no, it's 2018. Wow. All right. Well, it's a sad story for the six-year-old, but uh, hopefully it'll end well for her. As always, Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.